0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. We are uh, continuing our series, going walking through the book of Job. Uh, it's called God and Evil, uh, the book of Job, and we've been uh, just exploring some of the biggest questions in life. Questions like, where does evil come from, and if God is really all powerful and good, then why does evil? Exist in the first place. And the book of Job really uh, helps us to wrestle with many of those uh, difficult questions. And so uh, last week we looked at the role of Satan in the book of Job and talked about where uh, evil comes from in the first place. The week before we looked at God's sovereignty in the book of Job and talked about how God is sovereign over evil. This morning we're going to continue on looking at yet another aspect. Of the book of Job. We're going to be taking a closer look at Job's response to his suffering this morning. Um, Before we jump into that, uh, I wanted to just share with you a quote from a woman named Sarah Edwards. Sarah Edwards is the wife of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered probably the greatest theologian in American history. He ministered during the Great Awakening. And thousands came to know Christ through his preaching. The church was built up and is continuing to be built up through his preaching uh, and his writings. But in 1758, at the age of 55, Jonathan Edwards died unexpectedly from complications due to smallpox vaccine. Uh, turns out the doctor ac- accidentally gave him too large of a dose. Uh, and within a matter of days, Jonathan Edwards was dead. And in a letter to her daughter after his death, his wife, Sarah Edwards, wrote this. This is the entirety of the letter. This is what it says. My my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long, but my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your very affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. It's striking to me as I was reading that this week how Job-like Sarah Edwards' response was, isn't it? She even quoted Job in her letter when she said, May we lay our hands on our mouths, and the Lord has done it. And when she says, My God lives, or My Redeemer lives. Job, who had lost all of his wealth, all of his children, and his health, responded similarly by saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, reading the book of Job and stories of people like Sarah Edwards naturally makes you wonder, what enables somebody to be able to respond like that in the face of such tremendous grief and suffering? How do you do that? That's what we're going to consider this morning as we take a closer look at Job's response to his suffering. And the main point of the sermon this morning is that suffering reveals the true condition of our hearts. Suffering reveals the true condition of our hearts. I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's help, uh, and then we're going to dive in. So let me pray. Lord... I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for giving me the privilege to preach your word. But God, I am insufficient. I'm weak. I daily need your help. I certainly need your help to be able to teach and to preach your word. And so I pray that you would strengthen me in this moment, that, Lord, that you would help me to teach only what is right and what is true. Lord, I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth and to apply it. God with wisdom, and I pray that you would help all of us to be good listeners, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, help us to humble ourselves under your word, and I pray that you would teach us how to walk through suffering faithfully as followers of Jesus. And I pray for anybody in this room that does not know you, that's not born again, Lord Jesus, I pray that today that they would hear the gospel, and that they would hear it like they've never heard it before, that they would hear it... um, with, with, with ears of faith, God, that they would believe that Jesus died for their sin, that He rose from the dead so that they could have everlasting life. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the themes running throughout the book of Job is the integrity of Job's worship. And the first five verses of the book of Job describe him as a man of great piety and prosperity, Job feared God, and he turned away from evil, and God had blessed him. But in verse 6, Satan came to appear before God in the heavenly courts. And when the Lord pointed out to Satan that Job feared the Lord and that Job turned away from evil, Satan scoffed. Satan didn't believe that Job really loved or feared God. He believed that if God's blessings were removed from, that Job would turn on God in a heartbeat. So he questioned the integrity of Job's worship. In Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Satan says this. It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job's body. And Satan, uh, sorry, the Lord allowed Satan to to, uh, afflict Job's family and his possessions. And so Job lost all of his possessions, and he lost all of his children. But Job responded admirably. He refused to curse God. So once again in chapter 2, Satan appeared before the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan basically responds to the Lord and says, the only reason Job didn't curse you to your face is because you didn't let me afflict his body the first time. A man will give anything to save his own skin. So the Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job's body. And Satan struck him with terrible boils all over his body. So Job, at this point, is in a pitiful state. He's lost his family. He's lost all his possessions. He's lost his health. He's in physical agony. And then, to make matters worse, even his wife has had enough. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? curse God and die so now even Job's wife is echoing the evil one by urging Job to do exactly what Satan wanted which was to curse God and die and this is really the tension throughout the book of Job will Job hold fast his integrity will he continue to trust God And that same question could be posed to you as a follower of Jesus. You may be suffering right now in your life, or maybe you're not, but even if you're not walking through suffering now, one day you will be. Will you hold fast your integrity? What will suffering reveal about the condition of your heart? This morning, I want us to take a closer look at Job's response to his suffering, because Job gives us an example to follow when it comes to suffering and grieving well as a Christian. I want us to consider the intensity of Job's grief and the integrity of Job's worship. The intensity of Job's grief and the integrity of Job's worship. So let's first look at Job's grief. When Job first heard the news... That his children had died and his possessions had been lost, he was devastated. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That was a symbolic act of grief and mourning during that time and culture. Well, while Job was in distress, he continued to worship God. Verse 20 goes on to say that he fell on the ground and worshiped. You know, sometimes in the immediate aftermath of suffering, it can be easier to be strong because you're surrounded by friends and by comforters. If you've ever lost a loved one, you've experienced that outpouring of love and support in the first few weeks, but eventually the cards and the calls stop coming. Others have to return to their lives, but you are still left to pick up the pieces. After seven days of sitting in silence with his friends who came to mourn with him, Job finally spoke up and the grief began to pour out. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, he says, he's lamenting, Why did I not die at birth and come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest." Job's grief was so great that he openly questioned the point of his life. If he was born to experience such great pain, why be born at all? What was the point? You skip ahead in chapter 30, Job voiced his feelings of abandonment to God. In chapter 30, starting in verse 20, Job laments to the Lord. He says, I cry to you for help. And you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. Have you ever been in Job's shoes? Have you ever wondered what the point of all your suffering is? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Then you're in good company. That's how Job felt. You know, one of the many important lessons from the book of Job is that it is okay to grieve. God is able to handle our big feelings and our strong emotions. Trusting God through the midst of suffering and grief doesn't mean being a Stoic. In fact, it's much the opposite. Just study the book of Psalms and you'll see a wide range of emotions with which we're encouraged to approach God. The reality is that God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we are weak. Job's questions and his disillusionment were valid. Even though Job did did push the envelope by demanding answers from God, as you read on in the book of Job, he did not sin. And ultimately, when God confronted Job in chapter 38 for having the audacity to question him, Job quickly repented. Job realized that he was in no position to demand an explanation from God. He didn't need an explanation. He just needed to trust God. And so he quickly humbled himself before the Lord. But at the end of the day, Job grieved well because he refused to give in to Satan's temptation to curse God and die. In in fact, Job's very act of coming to the Lord and crying out to him and asking for answers and expressing his confusion only showed the fact that Job was looking to the Lord for answers. He wasn't willing to abandon the Lord. He wasn't willing to turn his back on the Lord. He had nowhere else to turn. And so he refused to let go of God. He refused to let go of his confidence that God was just, that God was good. And while he wrestled with understanding how that mixed with his actual life experiences and he suffered disillusionment and confusion He refused to sin by cursing God. One moment he had tremendous hope and faith. and the next moment, he was ready to die. But through it all, Job continued to cling to the Lord as his hope. If you are walking through suffering right now, it's okay to wrestle with God and ask questions. That's one of the reasons that the book of Job is in the Bible. God understands the grief process. He knows suffering. And He doesn't just understand it from afar. We worship a God who's not only transcendent, who's not only high and holy, but He's imminent. He's with us. In fact, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians chapter 1 says of Jesus that by Him all things were created, and yet this same Jesus is the Jesus that wept at the tomb of Lazarus. This same Jesus felt the sting of betrayal and loss. This same Jesus knows what it's like to be stricken by God. On the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The most comforting thing for a mourner is that Jesus is with you in your mourning. But we don't mourn as those who have no hope. As Christians, we worship the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just a sympathetic fellow sufferer. Jesus is also the one who defeated death and rose from the grave. And He will raise us up with Him, and He will restore all things. He will make all things new. That means that for the Christian, all pain is only temporary. Restoration is coming. And we're going to talk a lot more about what that looks like in week six. But for this morning, just remember that restoration is coming because Jesus has risen from the dead. And please know that you are not alone in your suffering. Not only is the Lord near to the brokenhearted, but He has given us the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 calls us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's really hard to walk through grief and suffering alone. You weren't meant to do that. You weren't meant to do that in isolation. And Jesus actually wants to care for you through your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just point out two really practical things. First, the first thing I want to point out is is to those who uh, maybe are are not suffering right now, just to Christians for how you can help comfort others. Let Jesus comfort those who are mourning through you, church. If you see a brother or sister walking through hardship, then serve them. Encourage them. Comfort them. I, I just want to say... By the way, that Pillar San Antonio, you guys do that so well already. And I'm so thankful for the way that you come around those who are grieving and the way that you come around those who are walking through difficulty. And I just want to encourage you and exhort you to do so all the more. That's that's the way that we are able to spur one another on. That's the way that we can love one another as the body of Christ. So be looking for ways that you can allow Jesus to comfort those who are grieving and suffering through you. And if you are one of those who is suffering right now and you are walking through hardship, I want you to know that your pastors here would love to meet with you and help you walk through your suffering. One of the privileges of being a pastor is being able to walk with people through their grief and through the hardships of life. And that might be current suffering, or maybe it could just be helping you process through suffering that you've walked through in the past. But either way, let us bear that burden with you, brother or sister. I'm available for pastoral counseling. Keith, Andrew, John, we're available for pastoral counseling. We want you to know you do not have to walk through that alone. In fact, and, and we even have a space on those connect cards on the back. There's this place where if you're interested and, and you want somebody to meet with you and reach out to you about that, you can mark that you're interested in pastoral counseling and drop that in the connection table. Or you can just come and find one of us after the service and just say, hey, can we meet this week? I have some things I'm going through or I've got some things I need to talk about and I just need somebody to walk with me through this hard, these hard times. And I'd, we'd be honored to do that with you. We'd love to do that. So as intense as Job's grief was, he maintained the integrity of his worship. It's possible to grieve tremendously and yet maintain the integrity of your worship. Let's look a little bit more closely at Job's response in chapter 1. Look at verses 21 and 22. Job says this after he's lost his children and after he's lost all his possessions. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job knew he didn't have a right to the blessings that God had given him. There wasn't a hint of entitlement in Job. He acknowledged God's right to freely give and to take away. And then let's jump down to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So uh, after the second round of of Satan's attacks, Satan uh, attacks Job's health. And in verse 9, Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And then Job responds like this in verse 10. He says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job told his wife that it was foolish to expect to receive blessings from God, but not hardships. Job knew that God's primary purpose, like we talked about last week, isn't to serve our needs or to make us happy. God's primary purpose is his own glory. The world revolves around God, not us. And both times in Job's responses, the author emphasizes that Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not curse God as Satan had predicted he would. Job definitely struggled. He asked questions. He groaned and he grieved, but Job did not turn his back on God. Job demonstrated that he loved and treasured God more than anything, including his possessions, his children, and his health. Even if God took everything from him, Job would not rebel against God. In chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Suffering reveals the true condition of our hearts. Suffering reveals what we really love. Suffering revealed that Job's worship of God was pure. How will you respond when suffering enters into your life? If the Lord takes what is most precious to you, will you still trust in Him? When suffering comes, it exposes one of two types of faith in our hearts. Either surface-level faith or sincere faith. Let me talk about each of these for a moment. First, suffering exposes surface-level faith. So when Job's wife urged him to curse God and die in chapter 2, what she was essentially telling him was that there's no point in worshiping God anymore. If he can't stop us from losing everything, then what's the point? What's the point of worshiping Him if He's going to take away all these blessings that He's given us? And sadly, that's how some people, even professing Christians, respond to suffering. They decide that God isn't worth following if He's going to allow them to suffer. Sometimes they just abandon belief in God altogether and decide that God doesn't exist. Others abandon trust in the God of the Bible, who is sovereign over-suffering, and they make a God of their own liking who would never let them suffer. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable of the soils to describe different types of faith. And in the parable, he describes how the seed that the farmer sows on the ground is the gospel, and the soil is the heart of people. And one type of soil fell on rocky ground that was shallow soil, and so it didn't have deep roots And so the plant, it it grew up quickly, but the sun scorched it. And since it didn't have deep roots, it withered away. Listen to Jesus' explanation of this type of soil when He's explaining the parable in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The heat of suffering exposes surface-level roots. Here's the reality. It's fairly easy to claim to love God when things are going well in your life. That's why nominal Christianity is so rampant in an affluent place like America. You don't see nominal Christianity in places like China, because if you're a Christian there, you're liable to be thrown into prison or put to death. If you're going to be a Christian in a place like that, you have to love Jesus more than everything, because there's a good chance that you may lose everything for the sake of Jesus' name. But in America, you can have your cake and eat it too, at least for a while. But when suffering does come, and it will, faith that is surface level will be exposed. It won't last. That's one of the reasons we're doing this sermon series. I want your roots to grow down deep into Christ. I want you to treasure Jesus more than anything else, because that's what true faith is is like. That's what Christianity is. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. I want you to have confidence in God's sovereignty and goodness so that when your world is rocked by cancer or by the death of a loved one or by job loss or by betrayal you'll hold on to Jesus. Because I don't want you to lose your soul to gain the world. I don't want you to discover at the end of it that after God takes what is most precious to you, that you turn on Him and it reveals about your heart that you never really loved Him in the first place. You really just loved His gifts. It's okay to groan when you suffer. You may groan, you may question, you may ask why like Job But I don't want you to turn your back on the Lord. Suffering exposes surface-level faith. That's why I want you to have your roots growing down deep into Christ. And here's the thing, that while suffering does expose surface-level faith, it does something else to sincere faith. Suffering exalts or exhibits and enhances sincere faith. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, suffering exhibits sincere faith. It platforms it. It holds it up high. Job's faith proved to be sincere because it withstood the test of suffering. There was no doubt at the end where Job's treasure was, was there? We can't question what the love of Job's heart was, can we? Because even after he lost everything that was most dear to him, he refused to curse God. And he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job loved God more than his family, more than his possessions, even more than his own life. And this is what the world needs to see. The world needs to see Christians who love Jesus more than anything. And suffering creates an opportunity for this to stand out. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. This is the call to discipleship. This isn't for super Christians. This isn't for the really committed Christians. This is Christianity 101. And here's what Jesus says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sincere faith treasures Jesus more than anything else in the world. And Jesus clearly says in this passage, that's what it means to be a Christian. And suffering is what unearths faith like this. It gives it opportunity to shine, to stand out. When you continue to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, even when he takes what is most precious to you, your health, family, possessions, then you are demonstrating Jesus' worth to your own heart. You're showing clearly that Jesus is better even than the best of his blessings. Conversely, if you angrily turn on God because he takes something away from you, then you are showing where your real treasure lies. Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, land, health, these are all wonderful blessings. But they're gifts. They are not God and we must not make them our gods. The reason someone like Sarah Edwards could respond to her husband's death with such courageous faith was that she had already surrendered all that she had in her heart to the Lord. She loved her husband, but Jesus was her treasure. Do you hold God's gifts to you with open hands like that? Or have you become possessive over them? Have you made them the object of your affection? Have you told Jesus, you can have almost everything in my life, but you can't touch this. And if you touch this, I don't think I could ever trust you anymore. Then, brother or sister, that's called an idol. And you need to let it go this morning. You need to let it go and you need to give it to Jesus. Because until you do, you're not going to be able to walk through the suffering that the Lord's going to call you to walk through in this life. Suffering exhibits a sincere faith, a faith that treasures Jesus more than anything else. But it doesn't just do that. Suffering also enhances sincere faith. It it refines it. It improves it. Job's faith was strengthened as he walked through this season of suffering. He came out on the other side, knowing God more intimately than he ever had before. In chapter 42, at the end of Job's ordeal, after the Lord has revealed himself in all of his glory to Job, Job exclaims this in chapter 42, verse 5. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He came to see that God really was his treasure that God really could sustain him, even if he lost absolutely everything. It wasn't an easy process. Job's suffering revealed new depths of sin and unbelief in his heart that I'm sure he didn't even know were there. I mean, in the first five verses of the book of Job, he's just living his life. He's a godly man, he's got the respect of the community, he's doing well, and he's just trucking along, right? And he thinks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I love the Lord. I'm thankful. But Job, just like the rest of us, we all have sin, roots of sin in our hearts that run far deeper than we could ever, you know, ever begin to realize. And suffering exposes it. It roots it out. Job says in chapter 42, verse 6, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He came to the conclusion after the Lord confronted him that there was much more sin in his heart than he had realized before. You see, suffering squeezes sin out of us. It's easy to keep sins of the heart like pride and selfishness and jealousy stuffed in a box when we aren't suffering. But suffering leaves sin nowhere to hide. It comes out, and oftentimes that's the most painful part of suffering for followers of Jesus, is to see the ugliness of the sin that was there that coming out of us, coming out of our mouths, our attitudes, our actions. It can be disrupting. I've learned more about how sinful I am through my children than anything else. We adopted all three of our children a couple of years ago, and we went from having zero children to three overnight. And I'll tell you, it was a shock to my flesh. Learning to care for my children uncovered levels of selfishness and anger in my heart that I had no idea were there. Can I get a witness on that? Anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so thankful that God has used suffering like that to do what He has promised, which is to sanctify me to make me holy, to root sin out of me, to make me more like Jesus. And and guys, this is all over the Bible. Just one example is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. You might be familiar with this verse. James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, why would we do that, James? Why would we count it joy when we meet trials? He says this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, I need you to hear me, Christian, follower of Jesus. If you're a Christian, God loves you way too much to let your sin remain in your heart undealt with. It's our sin that separates us from God. And Jesus died on the cross as a substitute in our place to free us from the penalty of sin that we justly deserve. Then He rose from the dead three days later. But Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin. It also frees us from the power of sin over our lives. We are counted as righteousness because Jesus took the punishment in our place, and then he's given us his righteousness as a free gift. So if you placed your faith in Christ, you are clothed with Jesus's righteousness. But God also intends to make you holy, to root sin out of your life. And that's a lifelong process called sanctification that God has promised to finish in the life of every single Christian. And it will be completed on the day that you stand before Jesus. But It's not a pleasant process all the time. And oftentimes, I would even say usually, the times of the greatest growth in our lives and holiness are the times when we're walking through hardship and suffering. Suffering will drive those with surface-level faith away from God. But it will drive those with sincere faith closer to Him. Suffering reveals the true conditions of our heart. Where is your heart this morning? If you would admit to me that you aren't sure that Jesus is actually your treasure, then I want to invite you to make Him your treasure today. You do that by repenting of your sin. Whatever idols you've put in His place Whatever thing, whatever blessing in your life that you are loving and treasuring more than Jesus, it means laying that at His feet and being willing to say, Jesus, I surrender everything over to You. All of it is Yours, and I surrender it into Your hands. You are my treasure. And it means believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and rose from the dead, and if you'll place your faith and your trust in him, you'll be forgiven of your sin, you'll be forgiven of your idolatry, and you'll receive the free gift of eternal life with him. God promises that no matter how far you've strayed, he will not reject a broken or repentant heart. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never truly done that, I want to invite you to do that. This morning, even if you've been going to church your entire life, I grew up in church. I went to church for 24 years of my life and realized after 24 years that I had just been playing church. I'd been going through the motions. I'd prayed the prayer. I'd even been baptized when I was a kid, but Jesus was not my treasure. I didn't love Jesus more than anything. In fact, I loved my sin. And the Holy Spirit was gracious and convicted me of that and showed that to me and made me realize I needed to turn away from putting other things before Him and I needed to treasure Him. And here's the reality, like, if you're on the fence about whether or not to do that, like, there's nothing better than Jesus that you're going to find out there in this world. You could look for the rest of your life. You could keep searching and searching and friend, you're, you're going to search in vain. You're not going to find anything like Jesus because you were made by Him and for him. And we're not promised tomorrow. Ultimately, your eternity is at stake. And the Bible says that right now, if you are apart from him, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, that the wrath of God remains on you because of your rebellion, because of your idolatry, because of your refusal to worship Jesus as your king. But he is patiently and graciously giving you an opportunity to come to him this morning. If you'll only lay down your pride and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Don't refuse His offer of grace this morning. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Place your faith in Christ this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus walking through suffering, I want to encourage you to hold fast to Jesus. You do that by trusting in His person, who He is and in His promises. In the midst of Job's dark doubts in chapter 19, his faith broke through with a declaration of faith and hope. In Job 19.25, Job says right in the middle of his grieving, he stops and it's like he he breaks through the, the fog of doubt and unbelief and grief. And he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. Brothers and sisters, we have even more reason to have such confidence because we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. We know that our Redeemer loves us because He died for us, and we know that our Redeemer lives because the tomb is empty and you won't find His body. He's risen from the dead. Amen. And just as Jesus was raised, He will raise us up with Him and bring us with Him into the presence of God. Jesus instructed Christians to regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way to help us do that, to help us fix our eyes on His person and on His promises. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, when they were taking the Lord's Supper, He said, Do this in remembrance of Me. The Lord's Supper is a physical reminder that everything that you've just heard is true. You've heard the gospel with your ears and now we get to see it with our eyes as we take the Lord's Supper together. The bread and the juice represent the body and the blood of Jesus that were broken and shed for you and for me. And the Lord's Supper is also a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will have with Jesus in the new heavens ...and the new earth, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a way of helping us fix our eyes on what's true... ...on the person and the promises of Jesus. Now, by taking the Lord's Supper, you're declaring the Lord's death until He comes, the Apostle Paul says. And that means that you're proclaiming your faith in the gospel. You're saying, I believe this and that Jesus is my treasure... That, that I love Jesus more than anything else. That's what you're declaring when you take the Lord's Supper. So because of that, the Lord's Supper is only for born-again Christians who've been baptized. It's a fellowship meal intended to distinguish between who's in Christ and who's not in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, then today, instead of participating in the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to spend that time placing, praying, and giving your life to Jesus. Because we want you to start taking the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Nothing would give us more joy than to see you have fellowship with Jesus and with us so that you can start taking the Lord's Supper with us. So if that's you, then in a moment when we're taking the Lord's Supper together, spend time praying repenting of your sin, placing your faith and your trust in Jesus. And if you are a believer and you're going to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning, what I want you to do, we're going to have a, a moment of reflection after we come up and get the bread and the juice. I want you to return to your seats and just spend time thanking God and declaring to Jesus that He's your treasure, thanking Him for giving Himself for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins.